0: professor of political communication at the Federal University of Maranhão in Brazil and in partnership with Alex Pryor, lecturer in politics at the University of East Anglia in the UK, I have produced the podcast Democratic Engagement today. In the current context, we planned to hold a series of conversation with academics worldwide and discuss various responses to the pandemic and how this might impact on politics and democracy. Consequently, we have been asking these academics about the challenges and the consequences of this time for each country beyond medical concerns. And we have been discussing these problems, proposed solutions, and the state of politics and democracy as we understand it.
1: Uh, so just to recap on uh, some previous episodes, we've spoken uh, in the past with Nicole Curato, uh, who's based at the University of uh, Canberra. Uh, we've spoken with uh, Professor Cristina Leston-Bandela, Bandera, uh, is based at the University of Leeds. We uh, spoke with Nicole about responses to COVID in different uh, political systems and how, depending on the system in question, COVID has essentially been used as kind of pretext for cracking down authoritarian regimes and also talking about the potential for digital practices, digital democracy, as a way of of reconnecting to citizens or connecting to citizens during this kind of crisis and for heightened functionality uh, in the face of what is an unprecedented challenge. Um, Similarly, we spoke with uh, Professor Lestam-Bandera about uh, these kind of challenges and about uh, new techniques that uh, parliaments are using, uh, increased take-up, or at least sort of the relationship with uh, take-up of digital practices within political institutions. Um, We spoke a little bit about uh, practices in Brazil in Portugal and UK, and um, how there has been a different sort of uh, take up in a different uh, adaptation to this kind of crisis depending on the political system depending on the sort of current state of affairs democratically and uh, politically um, so we're hoping to i think sort of explore those kinds of questions and more across future episodes in view you-
0: the current COVID-19 situation and how governments around the globe have dealt with the crisis, especially the differences among countries concerning new social dynamics and the economy recovery, this episode focuses on the discussion of how trust can be an important variable for the social and political game. So Alex, every time that I talk to my friends we discuss how much we envy you in the UK, in Europe, because while we are still living under a kind of lockdown regime, at least people who care about their health, you are in the parks having fun. I feel like you don't live in a pandemic world anymore and in the meanwhile we have more than a hundred thousand deaths in Brazil and a temporary Minister of Health since May. So maybe did people become tired or bored of staying at home or is the situation controlled enough for you to behave this way?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I really just can't envisage what would happen and what sort of public reaction there would be if um, it was a kind of home-based lockdown like what you're describing. And it's absurd to not be able to envisage that because, I mean, just to take one example, there are many others. I have close friends in uh, Botswana who have been talking about what lockdown is like over there. You cannot go out, you know, a much more kind of um, stringent set of measures uh, that um, that here have just not been experienced, even when, um, you know, sort of daily death figures were, you know, in kind of high hundreds, sort of uh, going towards a thousand. So I really I really can't imagine that happening, and it's kind of silly in a way not to be able to uh, imagine that happening. Um, As we've spoken about before, I think there's a kind of palpable sense of, think of a better word for boredom, a kind of sense of ennui, existential ennui, uh, going on um, in terms of, I think, the amount of patience that there is with different directives and... I'm sure what's seen as very kind of a contradictory sets of instructions and policies. Um, the upshot, I suppose, if if you want to call it that of something like a kind of home based restrictions on movement is that it's very clear what people can and can't do. Um, whereas I think, and I'm sure I've said this in previous episodes, there's still, I think, a certain amount of confusion as to, um, As to what you can do, where you can go, if you're allowed to go to a restaurant, can you go with people from other households, etc, etc, etc. Endless permutations on that kind of thing. Um, It's funny that you use the word envy, I think, because uh, I think that's possibly the only way in which someone could envy uh, the UK case or the UK situation. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a palpable sense of people kind of uh, losing patience. I think um, there's some concern about rising rates, especially during summer, because I think naturally enough, that's making people worry what winter is actually going to look like. I've um, been looking with a certain amount of sort of envy, admiration uh, at uh, places like New Zealand, which I know has just um, announced new cases. Uh, but I think for a lot of countries and a lot of people, it's kind of a model of uh, effective responses, not just um, New Zealand, Vietnam. Yeah, uh, I think, as I said uh, uh, previously, there's a kind of a confusion over whether worst is yet to come, whether the situation is going to decline in winter. Um, and again, it's not like there's been a sudden kind of spike in cases, but the but the stats haven't all been going in a kind of positive uh, direction, uh, which I think is a is a case for worry. And there's a lot of kind of back and forth it seems, sort of government-wise in terms of how quickly or easily lockdown in a kind of localized sense would be reintroduced. I think um, it's becoming much more kind of targeted uh, towards yeah, kind of particular places um, in sort of north and west Yorkshire, uh, and the Midlands. I mean, I myself am based in Norwich at the moment, so my experience of it is going to be very different to if I were based in a big city like Manchester or London, for example. Um, So again, it's kind of very, it's very different according to the area, even in a relatively small country. Um, And it's becoming more sort of localized and targeted, but I think the same problems are still there in um, in terms of clarity, of instructions. I mean, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it, because we're kind of in an age where information can be transmitted extremely quickly uh, via social media and all the rest, uh, even though not everyone has access to it, and we've spoken about that in the past. I have also spoken with several people who, you know, have kind of cracked that work-life balance now and have got used to a certain degree to lockdown, so... From person to person, it's a very mixed uh, image, I think, and um, a very mixed set of communications, um, uh, sort of government, uh, government-wise, which I think is inevitable to some degree because the situation is changing so much, so quickly. Sometimes getting worse, sometimes getting better, and very seldom at a national level. You know, it's so. It's so localised, community-based. I mean, again, this kind of, um, this outbreak, well, a small outbreak of cases in New Zealand, you know, this is one family we're talking about, and all of a sudden um, Auckland, you know, uh, changes overnight, you know, uh, from moment to moment. So um, it remains, I think, a very uh, a very uncertain time. I don't think it's doing anything for trust in government. Um, but... Yeah, Yeah, again, perhaps.
0: Yeah, and governments are in the center of this crisis because you said, as you said, the UK is a relatively small country, Brazil is a big country, so we have a bigger problem. But for example, you have Canada, which is a very big country, and it's in a better condition than us in Brazil and much better than you in the UK.
1: It very much kind of speaks to this idea of it being so different um, from country to country. Again, you know, kind of looking at looking at the case of somewhere like China, you know, it's so much dependent on what infrastructure was there before, what sort of, uh, what kind of culture there is. I'm not just talking about sort of historical culture, we're talking about surveillance culture, for example. I mean, uh, I don't have the data on this, and this is mostly kind of anecdotal, but I think, um, a lot of what I've heard from the case of Canada, which, as you say, is an enormous country, but you know we need to bear in mind that the population is considerably smaller than the UK. Um, but also, I've heard lots in terms of in terms of this culture of a certain degree of trust. I think in kind of national and regional government or governance, maybe more more accurately, where I think it was just a quicker springing into action and perhaps more of an insistence in the case of the UK that uh, this could be weathered. Um, I mean, we've spoken and will continue to speak about this relationship, which is often a kind of complex relationship between the level of trust Mm -hmm. in healthcare institutions and political institutions to actually deal with a challenge like this and whether that results in an effective response. And often there's a kind of um, sort of inverse ratio where the less trust there is um, sometimes the better response there is because there's not a, Assumption—it's um, almost not a kind of hubris that uh, the country can cope, that the infrastructure can cope, that the healthcare systems can cope. But in the case of Canada, the, there is maybe a positive relationship between trust and um, action. People just kind of getting on with it. Again, this is sort of anecdotal, but there's no reason necessarily to dismiss that. Um, so again, we're kind of looking at every single variable from uh, from country to country, but. Uh, yeah you're you're right in that sense and i think it's um i'm really interested in this difference between um unitarian federal government mm-hmm. as well in terms of uh, in terms of responses and you can kind of abstract that to the uh, level of the us for example where it does seem to you know, to just be such a messy uh, much messier kind of system, uh, even more than the UK, and it's difficult to find a worse case than the UK at the moment. But uh, which makes which makes your envy all the more surprising. But with the description you gave, I can certainly understand it. Uh, but I really don't know what would happen if uh, suddenly everyone in the UK was told that they had to uh, stay at home, had to stay at home. Um, I really can't even picture what that would be like.
0: Oh yeah. I've seen that photo of the guy who was wearing a mask, uh, only a mask, you know, in the streets of London. Uh, yeah, um, I think um, that that pictures a lot. What means to say to a British person in the summer to stay at home?
1: And I think there's um, there's something particular about uh, British culture, peculiar about British uh, sh- culture. Just as one example, I'm sure there are others of. Um, being very grateful for sunshine and immediately running outside and enjoying it because it's such a uh, rare and beautiful experience. (laughs) We actually have sort of many uh, very, very senior academics at the moment on Twitter complaining about the uh, weather, which again is a kind of very British thing, but also um, I think if any PhD students or early career academics are listening uh, and uh, they want to sort of demystify or get rid of their um, imposter syndrome in academia, um, you could do a lot worse than joining Twitter and seeing the, um, I don't mean petty in a bad sense, but petty concerns of uh, people running departments and that kind of thing, <laughs> because it really does give one uh, hope and encouragement that one's allowed to complain about this kind of thing. Uh, but um, yeah, the, I mean, you mentioned London, and I always get used to thinking of London almost as a kind of cultural enclave within uh, England as well, because London is, is also just such a different case, you know. Um, So, all the more reason. I I
0: wouldn't be surprised if I saw that scene in Leeds, for example, because, you know, when I lived there, I remember in 2016, we had only three weeks of summer. During the three months of summer, we had only three weeks of real summer. And I remember one of them was during the finals of the undergrad, and everybody was studying in in Hyde Park and you know everybody was half dressed
1: i wouldn't uh, i wouldn't be surprised to see it in leeds meaning no disrespect to the great city of leeds which i uh, like very much i'd be surprised to see it in norwich uh, but okay. i feel like uh, i feel like we don't have enough time to uh, explain why but you're you're quite right and i suppose this goes back to a broader question of uh, inside a country the country never seems to be a kind of unitary whole it seems to be different from city to city and i'm yeah. sure to you kind of brazil is not brazil brazil is amazonia brazil is you know uh, uh, sort of, uh
0: yeah we have lots, you
1: know, spotters, all yes. lots of yeah, yeah yeah absolutely uh, so yeah you you make a fair point there that i'll that i'll accept <laughs> but um it's, it's unsurprising to hear that, and I think uh, there's, a, there's a peculiar British imagery in that kind of, uh, in that kind of act, you know. But um, again, sunshine here is so rare. What's the, um, uh, what's the Bill Bryson line, the, the thing about uh, the weather in uh, England is that there just isn't very much of it.
2: All right,
0: so uh, you were talking about this, the federations, you know, the federative model and the unitary model of countries. And I'm, I'm curious about how you have been in the UK because I've never talked to you about this kind of thing. But how have you, uh, you know, regional governments, city councils, how independent they are to take some measures to control the pandemic in, in the cities, uh, how independent they are from the, the government, the UK government?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. and I mean, again, it, it sort of gets to, it gets to the heart of how particular every example that we're talking about is because I think in the case of the UK, I think it's another reason why there is so much a sense of confusion as to what's being done by whom because I don't think there's a kind of clear overall understanding or widespread understanding as to where national government begins and local government ends. It's a very interesting political story in terms of the kind of rise and fall of, uh, you know, devolution of powers uh, regionally. Um, depends very much whether we're talking about sort of metropolitan councils with mayors and that kind of thing, or whether you know, we're talking about a different kind of regional authority. I do know that um, a couple of regional authorities have um, wanted to and sort of intend to introduce their own kind of testing and tracing system because government-wide, it's seemed to be not enough. And I think that is a real kind of narrative at the moment, that, um, uh, that testing and tracing uh, was too late off the, you know, uh, uh, too late to begin, uh, not extensive enough. Here are all kinds of stories about the staff responsible for that. Um, making, you know, a a small handful of calls a day or successful calls a day, Um, which, you know, is not portrayed as kind of their fault. No one's kind of being portrayed as sort of uh, lazy or unenergetic here. It's mostly about this kind of direction from government and this clarity from government. Um, So, again, this kind of very much plays into the... um, uh, Uh, confusion and I think this kind of narrative of slightly kind of shambolic uh, response uh, here and um, yeah, I think that's probably the most kind of important point to make at this point that that there are a number of regional authorities that um, appear to be so dissatisfied for, you know, legitimate reasons um, in the national response you know, and what is a very kind of centralised unitary country, sufficiently um, disappointed in the response or seeing it as lacking, that um, they're prepared to kind of pick up the slack themselves or see it as necessary. It doesn't look good for governance, which is often only ever seen as as national, really. Um, and I mean, a separate point is the fact that, yeah, I don't think there's much kind of public knowledge as to what um, regional authorities, regional government, uh, actually kind of does on a day-to-day level, um, outside you know kind of basic sort of council services like collecting bins is always kind of example of that, and also just not a massive amount of interest or engagement with the, the, the sort of engagement levels that we see in terms of um, sort of uh, local government elections, police crime commissioners especially. Um, reflects this idea that there's just not that connection there which is a shame really is it's, it's often a, uh, an area or a forum where people can make a lot of difference but again that's a slightly kind of separate point so um yeah i think um all of this is really sort of contributing towards this sense of a kind of um a sort of disaggregated messy shambolic slow and kind of um and incomplete response from the the government, which definitely doesn't seem to be reflecting public sympathies at the moment, very much sort of trying to still trot out the line, convincing perhaps only themselves uh, that this has been a rapid response and a really comprehensive response. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and furthermore, you have the problem of, uh, not the problem, but the question of Scotland and Wales, you know, because they are part of the UK, they are. They should be coordinated by the UK government, but they also have some kind of independence to take some measures which can conflict sometimes with the measures, uh, I don't know, approved by the UK government, at least about this, about everything, but in this particular context of, of COVID-19, it would be, it should be a problem.
1: Yes, indeed. And um, it's and I mean, uh, uh, Northern Ireland as well, you know, uh, yeah. and I think... Uh, yeah, but I mean the other Scotland,
0: ones because you have borders, you
1: know. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. No, you're, no, you're quite right. Uh, and um, in the case of Scotland, for example, it's sort of uh, this sense of comparison uh, between someone like Boris Johnson and someone like Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon often sort of uh, put forward as a real kind of... Uh, a sort of positive alternative to the approach of uh, Johnson, and often, you know, it's very interesting to see um, Sturgeon's responses to uh, Johnson's announcement, for example, and we often see, you know, I think relatively small but very significant policy divergence, you know, very much get the sense that uh, we're looking at two different uh, systems here. Um, and I think all of this is kind of aided and abetted by the fact that, uh, you know, as the UK um, stats come in daily about casualties, cases, deaths. Um, obviously, for statistical reasons, they're going to be lower in um, uh, Wales and Scotland, but pretty dramatically. And I think this maybe sort of contributes to that uh, uh, to that impression as well. So that's an important thing to. Uh, to be, to be bearing in mind. Uh, again, you know, looking at a sort of, um, looking at the disaggregated uh, system to some, uh, to some degree. I'm curious, I mean, sort of outside what you've done, what you've mentioned before, uh, during this, uh, during this conversation, the question that you asked me, which I'd like to sort of return to you, is this idea of sort of what's going on beyond uh, what's happening in the news, what's being sort of read uh, in the book, sort of what's, you know, how are you sort of going on and how do things feel over there?
0: Well, I think we are, we are, we are almost in the same place we were when we talked in our first episode. Mm-hmm. We have that, uh, we have an increasing curve of contamination by COVID-19, we have uh, no policies, you know, from the national government to control uh, the spread of COVID-19. And now we have a dangerous situation that is, the virus is going to the countryside where the health system is more precarious. It's a more delicate situation. And since we didn't didn't have this coordination from the national government, uh, we have some regions and some uh, states that have been controlling the disease and the number of deaths has uh, decreased. However, uh, some, um, some governors, some regional governors who are aligned to the national government didn't act in the beginning, in the very beginning. So now there are states, for example, in the center-west of the country, uh, the curve is really increasing uh, very much, you know. And it's it's worrying because if you don't if you can't control in some part of the country, it will spread again, all over the country, you know. Because people are traveling. Our economy is open, so we just don't have universities, schools, and this kind of space spaces working uh, right now. But the other ones, you know, uh, industry is open even though uh, those sectors who were not considered essential, they are working normally. Uh, I mean, in my city, everybody's, you know, the stores, the industries, everything is open. In my state, they tried to open schools in the capital city of my state, and it didn't work because it started to increase again the number of contamination because, you know, at school, how can you control? How can one picture control everybody not to, to take off the mask or, you know, we cannot do that. It, it's impossible to make this kind of agglomeration. I don't know where we are going because, as I said to you before, we don't have a, a, a real Minister of, of Health in the country since May, the end of May. So we are in August now. So during this pandemic, we actually had three ministers of states, but two, two doctors in the beginning of the pandemic between March and May. And they quit because they didn't want to follow what the president wanted. They wanted them to sign uh, protocols for people to take medicines that don't act, that don't have any, any action, you know, proved by science. It's a mess. And it's sad because in the northeast of Brazil, this pandemic arrived in a very uh, critical time because we also we also have, during in the beginning of the year, in the Brazilian summer, you know, the real summer in the whole country, we have many other diseases because of the, the summer. So it's just like you. In the Europe, you have some other disease, you know, because of the winter, in your case. For us, it's because of summer. So we had the combination of COVID-19 and other viruses and bacterias that proliferate during the summer, and it was a very critical moment to face the pandemic. And right now we have winter, a real winter, only in the south of Brazil. The rest of the country is still kind of summer, you know. For you, it's summer because we have 30, 28, 30 degrees. So it's pretty summer. And we don't know, we cannot see an ending of the situation. And and now, even though we have a vaccine, we don't know how, how this could control... The situation in the country because, you know, in the line of priorities, we don't see Brazil as a country that will have uh, vaccines in the first place, in the first moment. So maybe we will have to wait, for example, the US, which will buy, a st- they will make their stockpile of vaccine, and we'll have to wait that. And especially because we have a national government which is very condescending with the American
2: government.
0: So I'm sure we will wait. And now we have a one state of Brazil has signed a contract with Russia to test and to use that vaccine that we don't know that works. And you know, it's, it's a mess. People are lost, Govern, governors and regional governments in general are kind of lost. And as you said, in, about the UK, it's very confusing here as well. Today we have Mia Titsar here with us. She is the co-founder and the strategic advisor of Enlightened Myanmar Research Foundation, a non-profit research organization mainly conducting social economics, social and political research. In 2016, at this foundation, she created the Parliamentary Research and Support Program, which carried out and published the performance analysis on state and regional parliaments of Myanmar between 2011 and 2015. Currently, she is a PhD candidate in the Global Studies Program at the University of Massachusetts, Lobo. So, Mia, thank you very much for being here with us today.
2: Yeah, thank you, Isabel. Yeah. yeah thanks uh, for giving me this chance uh, to talk uh, internationally.
0: Uh, so, uh, first of all, since we don't have much information about Myanmar, uh, we would like you to outline the political situation of the country, uh, its recent history and how you have been walking towards a democratic status
2: we can see that uh, Myanmar's political landscape has not been smooth, you know. So soon after Myanmar gained independence from uh, British colonial rule, the communist insurgency, and ethnic armed revolutions began. So then in 1962, the country power was seized by one like um, the Socialist Party, the military packet, we can see that, and then control the power for nearly two decades. And then in 1988, we had the whole country uprising, you know, the mass uprising against the socialist authoritarian regime, and then we toppled the regime. But unfortunately, the military seized the power again and controlled the power for over two decades. So only recently, in 2015, the first civilian uh, government came into power. Uh, But uh, we can say that still the military's (coughs) role in the country's politics is significant and uh, it holds 25% of elected seats in the parliaments, so both at the union level and the state level parliaments. So it is true to say that uh, Myanmar is still like um, a semi-democratic country. And um, I think, like, uh, we all have been, you know, like, always uh, bearing that uh, fear of, like, the country might uh, be going back to the authoritarian regime at one point of the the, the transition.
1: Obviously, in situations like this, we have um, a lot of pressure put on democratic regimes or indeed any kind of uh, regime in terms of its institutions, in terms of... Bureaucratic system, that kind of thing, and uh, also, I guess, in terms of kind of trust of citizens in institutions to handle <clears throat> severe pressures like this. Um, and I was curious as to, I suppose, kind of how, sort of, from your perspective, this is being handled. Uh, I guess, in a kind of, um, in a sort of uh, health policy sense, um, whether there have been any kind of uh, political effects of that in terms of whether it's been used as a pretext for like changed. Form of rule, for example, or changed uh, political rhetoric, and um, if you have any thoughts on how much public confidence there is, uh, or across different publics, how much confidence there is in um, sort of health institutions or political institutions uh, to to cope with a, with a challenge like this?
2: I think, like uh, we first start uh, um, to talk about the the general trend of the COVID in the country you know so we can say that the covid came into the country late so only around like late uh, march we had very first uh, confirmed cases and at the time both the government and the public uh, we're already in a hide a lot, you know, by seeing like what's happening in the like a war across like a different countries, you know, and then they have that kind of hide a lot. So they somehow like a prepare for how we are going to respond if something really happened, you know, and then we also have that growing concern that um, the the country's, you know, um, health infrastructure is not really good, you know, and also uh, people also worry that uh, the country's uh, government, the civilian government is just actually recently came into power. So we don't really have the kind of like initially we don't really have trust, you know, uh, in these um, like. COVID handling cases by the government and also the health infrastructure. But we can say that uh, relatively uh, speaking, you know, the country and also the public, the government, you know, like did uh, some kind of like uh, the response, you know, in a uh, in a good way, you know, in an effective way, I think so. Um, in terms of the government response, you know, the government uh, quickly, you know, uh, uh, closed down the countries like uh, international entry point, you know, they canceled the international like uh, flights um, and uh, they just uh, maintained the relief flight, you know. Uh, so only one, only those people who really want to come back from like U- US or UK or like. Some other countries, we can you know contact to the embassy and then they arrange you know like, like a one uh, the flight, things like that. You know, so other other than that, relief flights we don't really have international flights. You know, so and then like uh, the the public, uh, they have a uh, like I said, you know, they have a, actually doubt in our government's response uh, to the the COVID. You know, so they have a overcautious situation. So they cooperate and also they follow the rules and 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 then in as in certain cases they are like very proactive like uh, in a way of like community uh, developing the community response you know they set up uh, the actually the community groups and then they also uh, provide uh, some kind of like an education that COVID like a response education to the to to the public and also i think we also need to give credit of uh, facebook based uh, education because the countries i think 45% of the population use facebook across you know the country uh we have a a, a lot of like a facebook Facebook-based education, and then in uh, certain cases, the people also set up some of these community-based response. You know, they set up the patrolling point and a checkpoint, like uh, at the entry of the community, and then they check. You know, they patrol. You know, things like that. So we have kind of not intentionally cohesive, but the situation of the country. You know, with a poor health infrastructure and also um, the people also have uh, some uh doubt on the government like in uh, a in its capacity to respond so they actually collaborated i think like uh, this situation is good and also this situation actually saved the country in a covid situation so we only have so far like i think six covid related deaths and then like only about 360 uh, confirmed cases and then like the spread is also very low so this kind of situation is like a, we can give like a credit back to our, our country and other people actually. Uh,
1: I have two uh, follow-up questions if I, if I may. This concept of trust I think is absolutely essential uh, if we're talking about the relationship between the politics and the political elites and I suppose Going beyond COVID, something like trust is sort of relevant uh, beyond COVID and kind of policy sense and also in a sort of temporal sense and kind of time sense. Um, so, what does trust mean sort of within kind of your research and? Uh, I was hoping for some kind of insight into, I suppose, kind of how much political trust there was perhaps between uh, political elites and between citizens and what we might mean by trust, trust in kind of democratic intentions, trust in, uh, again, kind of capacities of institutions more broadly, uh, trust in uh, kind of individual and collective uh, you know, competency, uh, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I was kind of keen for your, keen for your thoughts on, on trust as a, as a general concept here. Yeah.
2: I see. Okay. So the trust actually is a big issue in our country, you know, because the country has been, you know, passing through all of these tough years and all of these atrocities and uh, the country's uh, military regimes. It has been like uh, for nearly six decades It is really a a huge amount of time frame that we all have been suffering. So we have uh, that uh, trough deficit, but um, according to the so now, but we have we are already on the track of the political transition. You know, we have been, you know, moving like, uh, towards the democratic transition, like, uh, we can say that. But it is not really encouraging, like, if we look at the recent data, we found out uh, through the the audit of political engagement that we did in uh, 2019, late 2019. Uh, so the data shows that only about, like, uh, for 50, 52% of the respondents, they don't really uh, think that the countries... Uh, parliaments, the legislatures and uh, their representative can help the public. And only about like 16% of the respondent strongly agree that the MPs, you know, the representatives of their constituency have in touch with the people they represent. We need to actually um, handle the whole country uh, situation. We need to handle this uh, trust deficit issue. You know, we have a tr- that kind of trust deficit in uh, every aspect of the relationship building like uh, between like the government and the public between one community and another communities you know one like uh, ethnic uh, group and another group and a one racial group and another group one religious group and another group so in every aspect we have been facing with this kind of trust deficit so we really expect a lot on the this current you know the most popular uh democratic party that is also like at the party in power so we really put a lot of trust you know a lot of expectation on that party to like a uh, build uh trust and also like to build uh inclusive the nation building when it uh, started came into came into power in a 2015 uh, but the situation is not really like a promising because uh what i think is you know and also most of these like a civil society active civil society organizations thinks that the party even though it is uh, the, the country's the most popular largest democratic party uh, it actually the way it it has been doing is more in a sense of party politics not in a way of like a cohesive like a, a inclusive uh Building, I think like uh, the party thinks that uh, if they want, you know, the elections, like the landslide, if they want the landslide election, if they want the majority in the country's parliament, and then they can do the country, they can do whatever the decision they can make, they can build the country. No, this is wrong. So all of these different groups, especially ethnically different, like uh, the groups, has been waiting with a lot of expectation to to truly like uh, have a chance of representation. So the countries, that Democratic Party cannot create that kind of space, that kind of chance. So that actually gives us a lot of like uh, limited hopes in a, this current democratic transition led by the country's Democratic Party. So this is the trust issues that we really need to handle. And also the country civil society organizations, their role is actually huge and then they also really want to play role in a, in the like a important aspects of, kind of like a democratic transition but their role is uh, very limited and also, still like their freedom of speech and expression is being uh, violated. And um, so, like we have a slim hope in that aspect. And also, like in this age of like a popular democracy, and also in in this age of uh, rising. Uh, nationalist sentiment. Some of these like civil society organizations they take the, the, the standpoint of undemocratic like exclusive and uh, racially sensitive like a uh, standpoint. So we also really afraid of that kind of like undemocratic you know we can say the uncivilized uh, civil society organizations. So uh, that actually like uh, really create a lot of like uh, ethnic and uh, racial problems in the country and the the country image is actually totally distorted in international stage.
0: Okay, you said that 50% of the population use Facebook nowadays in Myanmar. So in the last five years you have had this increasing access to internet connection in the country and I, I guess this could have a role, an important role, in this political game, I mean, in the country. So how has this new scenario influenced political institutions? I mean, have they used internet to try to reinforce representation, communication with citizens, the visibility of their activities as representatives to try to, to establish the truth? On these institutions, and how has civil society fought back uh, on the other side?
2: Definitely, in our country, the role of Facebook is huge. But in um, internationally, you know, the image of Facebook in the context of Myanmar is not actually uh, good. So a lot of like, uh, you if you search, you know, the Facebook in Myanmar on a google or any like a search engine like uh, you will see a bunch of documents or studies or you know opinion based papers about like a facebook contribution to hate speech fake news and also the the community violence things like that but i agree like uh this kind of scenario to some extent. uh but the the role of facebook like as a space as a platform for us you know especially for the civil society organizations and also Uh, especially for the civil civil society organizations that are still being you know like a struggling for uh rising up for marginalized group they they actually rely facebook a lot the facebook actually serve as a forum and then all of these situations of Freedom of speech and freedom of expressions are actually not even guaranteed by the country's uh, democratic regime. So the 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 Facebook is like uh, the media at your hand. So they can just you know like uh, raise their concern and also like is, express everything of the violation of human rights on the Facebook. So this is actually the role of Facebook is huge and. Um, also, in a certain way, some of these like uh, representatives some members of parliamentarians, they also use Facebook to visualize their uh, activities, what they have been doing, how they have been you know, standing in certain issues. And then they also listening back the response of the, the people. And also the civil society. You now, civil society also give um, feedback to these parliamentarians, and also the political actors, and also the countries, the government, like uh, the military. You know, the the government armed forces. What? They have been doing like uh, in terms of offensive and uh, the operations, military operations against, you know, the ethnic armed groups. It's actually like a good forum for us for the right communication, the right feedback between the political and the the still the military actors and the people and the civil society actors. So I think like uh, the Facebook rule is huge. but. People in Myanmar say that uh, the experience of using Facebook actually teach them back how to use it. So this is whatever you have a discussion with them about uh, the Facebook uh, negative image, and then they will, you know, make a response like that.
0: Amit, finally, we would like to know more about the work of Enlightened Myanmar Research Foundation, your program specifically of research and support of parliaments and how you promote political education for the citizens and public engagement with political issues in the country. So what do you do in this this foundation?
2: Okay, thank you for, for this uh, kind of question. Um, so, MREF actually is kind of uh, Independent think tank, uh, research organizations, and then also the I think the oldest, you know, like a, a independent think tank, and in even one of the oldest maybe in in Myanmar, you know, we started since around 2010 uh, when the country uh, was hit by a very like a uh, devastated uh, storm, Nagis. So we actually like uh, uh, developing our skills and everything like uh, in a in a hands-on experience in the field and everything Thing. and then later on we realized that based, all of, based on all of these uh, learning uh, throughout all these years we really need to correct our knowledge these knowledge are actually distorted and uh, all of these like years of and democratic regimes and democratic and very cruel you know regimes so as I said we have a trust deficit and also actually even in our knowledge our, we are locked? with all of these constructs and all of these concepts that actually lead to that trust deficit so we don't really trust each other and then with that uh, like a existence existential trust deficit we cannot build our country we cannot build you know even though our intention is good like uh, we have a strong desire to build an, an, a democratic country we cannot build with that kind of like a exclusive knowledge you know es- we exclude each other like uh, we are playing like almost every day like uh, with with the concept of us and them so this is the situation we have been facing right now so the most important work walk- I think, like uh, we have been, MRF has been doing in this year is correction of knowledge to be more inclusive for all of these stakeholders. So we promote all of the the, the inclusive learning, and also we open the channel to all of the stakeholders and especially civil society active. The the civil society that uh, stands in a base on the basis of inclusive like uh, knowledge they should be like a voicing up so we actually open that kind of space in terms of like our forums and and also workshops and in these things we do and At the same time, we also do some researches like like audit of political engagement, you know, that we are kind of measuring the heartbeat of our democracy Uh, and also encouraging, like uh, providing that kind of information and encouraging like uh, both sides, the political actors and also the people to engage each other in a positive way. And also we provided uh, some of the support to the uh, parliament uh, organizations and the parliamentarians uh, so that uh, they can actually, some of these like active uh, MPs and also parliamentarians, they can put best of their efforts to represent the people in like in an inclusive way. So this is what MRF has been doing and also collaborating with some of the the institutions like uh, SOAS, DFID, all of these like international organizations that we have been working, you know. One of the important programs MREF has been actively involving right now is called Global Research Network on Parliament and People, or GRNPP. So for this program, we work in partnership, especially with SOAS London, and it has been funded by Arts and Humanitarian Research Council and Global Challenge Research Fund of UK. So under this program, we have been working closely with CSO across Myanmar and Ethiopia to nurture the research culture, knowledge, and capacity, and collaborative engagement. And then we promote inclusive policymaking and inclusive knowledge building. And uh, part of the the this program, MRAF, uh recently launched a new project called ATRA, uh, that is election-related research-based advocacy targeting uh, the upcoming general elections in Myanmar that will be held in November eight. Is the purpose of the project is to raise the advocacy issues and recommendations for the coming elected parliaments so it's it's I think like we still need to go uh very far we still need to be done a lot uh, I think like a uh, this, this situation I also um, see still see positive like sometimes it's the situations are like getting like uh, uh, waned and then like uh, getting like move forward going back forward things like that but within that like a uh, range within that uh, environment we still can uh, put our, our efforts to promote that sort of engagement you know so this is good
0: very nice it reminds me very much about the concept of bridging of robert putnam you have to make people believe each other and you have to make construct this community people have to be associated and then we can construct a, a society that can believe in the institutions and make democracy better.
2: Yes, exactly, Isabel. This is actually the rule that we have to follow, the concept, the knowledge we have to follow. Otherwise, we cannot build. And then we just lost.
0: Thank you very, very much, Mia Today It was a very nice conversation. I'm really glad to know more about other countries, to talk to people like you from uh, Myanmar and to know more about these different contexts of mine, but not that different because I see some similarities. When you talk about Facebook, I see a lot the problem about disinformation, misinformation, fake news here in Brazil. But for us, it's through WhatsApp, uh, the hate speech and how these hate communities are created through this kind of of tools, of digital tools. So uh, it's very nice to hear from from you.
2: Thank you very much to you both and giving me this um, chance to talk. And also, I also really like appreciate, you know, like one good, Aspect of COVID nineteen that the situation we call the a, a new normal that give us a, a better chance to connect at each other. So taking this advantage, and then we now have a connection, and then I now got a chance to talk.